afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Rob Port here on 970 WDAY. Hope you're having a good one. Good afternoon, Natil. How are you? Pretty good. There's a little bit of sunshine out there, which is lovely. It's been kind of gloomy out here. It was windy. This cooled morning. off quite a bit, too. Yeah, it's it's the winds. I seriously thought I was going to blow away this morning when I was putting gas in. Yeah, unpleasant. <laughs> well, uh, we're going to get right to it. We're uh, everything. There's so much going on in Washington D.C. Um, it feels like every day waiting for some new bombshell story to drop. Uh, there's that old proverb about me: "You live in interesting times," and we are living in interesting times. And I'm not so sure that was a. Uh, I things could be less interesting. I, I think. <laughs> I'd sign up for that. Uh, anyway, joining me here to talk about everything that's going on, Senator uh, John Hoven. Senator Hoven, uh, welcome to the program. Thanks for your time. You bet, Rob. Good to be with you. So with, um, I, I, I guess I, I had booked you on, on the radio show before we knew that we were going to get a, a, special, uh, a special prosecutor in uh, the, the, to look at the situation with, with President Trump. I, I, I know previously you had said that, that you were, I, I guess, a little bit just, just disturbed or, or, or were questioning some of the news reports that are coming out. Does this give you new confidence that, that there's a special prosecutor out that, that, that's going to handle this? How, how are you feeling about the situation now? I think people have confidence in Robert Mueller. Uh, he's the former FBI director, served under both uh, Bush and Obama. And so I think he brings real credibility, and I, I think that's helpful. Essentially what he is uh, a special counsel, actually, and essentially he's being brought in by the FBI uh, at the direction of the Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. And so he'll lead the uh, investigation that the FBI is already doing. So, again, we still have the ongoing investigations like I've talked about before. You've got the Senate Intelligence Committee, which is a bipartisan investigation. You've got the House Intelligence Committee, and then you've got the FBI uh, investigation. He'll lead the FBI investigation. Are, are you concerned at all about, because obviously in, in, in the background of all of this, uh, there, there's policy making to, to be made. I mean, there's there's the, the business of the country that, that needs to be attended to. Are you worried at all that this is going to be a distraction? And I say that Senate Majority Leader McConnell uh, made comments recently that, that you know, they were wishing less less drama was coming from the White House. Um, are you are, are you of that feeling as well? Well, yeah, I think everybody wants to focus on the, the important business of the country, and obviously I'm working to do that, as are others. And, you know, that means, uh, for example, we've been making real progress on reducing the regulatory burden. That tends to get overshadowed by news events. Uh, and at the same time, we're trying to uh, put together uh, health care reform uh, that we can pass and uh, uh, tax reform and tax relief and uh, figure out how to do more for our military and for our uh, outstanding uh, law enforcement personnel that the people feel safe. So, I mean, those, those are the fundamental priorities that we have to work on, no matter what other issues come up, and that's what we work every day to do. 701-293-9000. If you want to join the program, 888-970-9329. Email talk at WDAY.com. Let, let's talk about the, the regulatory reform. There was just a big vote not too long ago in the Senate on a CRA regarding the BLM methane emissions rule uh a cra by the way it's a congressional review act it's basically where congress could take up a regulation and basically repeal it um that had passed in the house 
leading up to the Senate vote, everybody seemed pretty convinced. Certainly your colleague, Congressman Kevin Kramer, felt pretty convinced that Senator Heitkamp was going to vote to repeal it, uh, and she didn't. Uh, you made the case that this was this was going to be detrimental to jobs and, and detrimental to, to the industry's ability uh, to operate in our state. Senator Heitkamp basically saying that the opposite. She she just she doesn't feel like it's going to cost one job. She doesn't feel like it's uh, you, you know she voted against repealing the rule. What are your thoughts on that at this point? I mean, it, 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 put put some of that in context for us. Well, again, this is one of these federal one size fits all rules that we're fighting. Uh, essentially, was put in by the Obama administration uh, on like the day they're going out the door. It had you know. Uh, Many millions in cost to it, and it makes it means that you know we have to try to do energy the same way in our state that they do it in every other state, and that's just not how it works. You can't have these big federal one size fits all rules without uh, driving up the cost of doing business, and of course that hurts job creation, that hurts economic growth. And this one was designed to address flaring, but you know our industrial commission has been working very hard at that, and in fact reduced flaring from something over 35 percent. I think now we're down below 10 percent. We continue to make progress. And so that's the kind of rule that we've been, uh, or regulation, that we've been working to uh, rescind since uh, President Obama left office. And I think that's why you're seeing our economy starting to uh, gain some strength and more job creation, because that, you know, you talk to any small business person, and they'll tell you how difficult that regulatory burden is. When I talked with Congressman Kramer, because one thing the Senator Heitkamp said is that the, the three, three affiliated tribes uh, of, of the Fort Berthold Reservation had had that was part of the reason why she voted against repealing the rule is they wanted to keep the rule. Congressman Kramer says that going back to February, uh, he had a delegation from the tribe in his office that said that they wanted the, the rule repealed and that it was their impression that Senator Heitkamp was going to vote against the rule. Now, I, I know Senator Heitkamp's decisions are her decisions, but did you ever have any meetings of the tribe where they indicated, I mean, did, did they change their position on this, to your knowledge? No, I'm not sure about that, Rob, but think about it for a minute. The, the states and the tribes, and, and I have legislation to get the tribes treated like states when it comes to their regulation. They're under way too much uh, federal regulatory burden already through Department of Interior, EPA, other agencies that, that the state struggles with. And think about this rule. Again, because we weren't able to rescind it under the um, uh, CRA, now the tribe has to do it like everyone else across the country, just like the state does. So why would they be in favor of that, particularly when I think you talked to some of the members of the council and they said, well, no, we want to be able to to have control over how we put that's exactly right that's what we want is, is states primacy and tribes primacy and how they implement um rules and regulation rather than the federal one size fits all so that might be something you'd want to ask them because by rescinding it that gives them the authority to set it up the way they want by keeping it they have to follow the uh, you know this federal rule on the same basis as everybody else across country 701 you talked about obviously one of you know some parts of the business that you wanted to get to is is healthcare reform. The House passed a bill. What do you think of that bill? I mean, obviously every, everybody's assuming it, that that bill as it stands now is not going to make it through the Senate. Are the what parts of it, that bill would you like to keep? Which which parts would you like to see changed? Well, we're writing our own bill, and there's kind of three main areas or three kind of broad principles that I think have to be in it. 
in order for it to work. And, and remember, we start with the objective uh, that we, we're trying to make sure people have access to health care and that uh, health care and health care insurance is more affordable, more choices, uh, more competition, uh, and we think that's what, what serves everybody. And so we start there, and I think first you have to look at, okay, how are we working with Medicaid? What reforms can we make there to give states more control so that they have more flexibility? We can do a better job and make sure people, low-income people are covered and also find ways to innovate and save. And then how do we dovetail that into uh, what I believe needs to be a more robust, uh, refundable tax credit, uh, whereas the house is based it on age, you have to base it on age and income. So you make sure that uh, low-income individuals can get access to health care either through Medicaid directly or get uh, a policy that they can afford. And then the third principle is you've got to be able to address the pre-existing conditions and the chronic illness. And I think we have some very good ideas where you can certainly work with the states, but you have uh, – a federal backstop uh, so that people know that if you've got a chronic illness or pre-existing condition, you still get access to health care and health care insurance without seeing your rates uh, go way up. So I think those are the three concepts you have to have in it. We've got a lot of good ideas. The challenge is getting, you know, 51 votes out of the caucus of 52 because our colleagues on the other side of the aisle won't engage with us on it. Well, it's going to be an interesting uh, debate going forward. Senator, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Rob. That's Senator John Hoven. More to come on the Rob Report, 701-293-9000, We're going to take a break. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Welcome back, Rob Reporter here on 970 WDAY, 701-293-9000, email talk at WDAY.com. Until, did you see this new uh, cover of Time Magazine? I have not. What's on the cover of Time Magazine? Well, it, it just popped across my Twitter feed, but the cover of it, it shows the White House, and it's, it's kind of a, a White House being uh, transitioned into... I, I, I guess I guess it's supposed to be the Kremlin, right? Because like the White House is turning into like red bricks, and then you see all those sort of onion domes, right? That, oh. that people associate with that. The problem is, is the image they're depicting. That's that's not the Kremlin. That's Saint Basil's Cathedral, which is near the Kremlin, but is not actually the, the Kremlin. So I'm not sure what point that I, the White House is turning into a Russian Orthodox church. I don't. I think maybe that Not cover the could have used. Domes. I, I I think maybe that cover could have used a little additional thought, because that's not that's that's not the Kremlin. I mean, I, you know, their point is supposed to be like Russians are taking over the White House, right? Like that. The, the point the point is coming across. It just was not perhaps as well executed as it could have been. Right. Right. I mean, if we're gonna, yeah. Not poorly executed time. I mean, I I get the point that they're trying to make, and it's. It's a provocative one, to be sure, and and one worth discussing. I'm not dismissing it that way, but I mean, if you're going to do something like this, do it, do it correctly. Come on. 
You know, other uh, sad news this morning. I don't know. Were you um, you a Soundgarden fan at all, Natil? I was, actually. Um, I was okay. very, very sad to hear about yeah, the Chris passing Cornell. of Chris Cornell. And, and more, he was more than just Soundgarden. I mean, he did a, a, you know, Temple of the Dog, a super group with uh, Pearl Jam. He did Audio um, Slave. Audio Slave with um, Rage Against the Machine. Um, you know, he did he did a lot of projects. His his music. There's a great cover of him uh, that's pretty recent. It's on YouTube of uh, him covering Prince's uh, uh, pr- Prince song. Uh, no, uh, geez, now I'm completely blanking it. Uh, Nobody compares to you. That's the name of the song, right? I'm nothing compares to you. Nothing compares. That's it. Whew, I lost my train of thought there. All right. Um, great cover. So I mean, he was just a, a talented, talented musician. Apparently committed suicide. Um, which is just, is, is just tragic. I, I get, I, I get so, I, I'm, I'm not one generally to get real worked up about celebrity deaths or whatever, but suicides, I just, you know, if, if, if you need help, get help. I mean, I, I don't know who you are or who, I don't care who you are or what situation you're in. There's, there's no need to go out like that. There's, there's no need to do it. There's support available. There's phone numbers you could call. There's people you could contact. Reach out to somebody. Talk to somebody. Don't go down that road. Um, you know, it's it's tragic that we lost Chris Cornell, who in my childhood, you know, a teenager, I was I was 14 when Super Unknown came out, and it was like it was amazing. I mean, alongside Nirvana, I mean, just sort of a transition from. I mean, at the time, I mean, it was still. It was still a lot of hair bands, right? I mean, it was still like a lot of like Motley Crue and Def Leppard and a lot of that kind of stuff was popular. And then all of a sudden, like Soundgarden and Nirvana, and it was completely different. I mean, it was, I remember the first time I heard um, Black Hole Sun. I mean, it was, it was, it was a moment that, that I remember. I mean, it was, it was amazing. So I don't know, talented artist. Sad that he le- that he's leaving us, and all all the more tragic because it was apparently suicide. And you know, you just don't have to do that. You just don't. Seven zero one two nine three nine thousand eight 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 nine seven zero nine three two nine. It's been tough, you know, because not long, that long ago, I had a uh, I had a, f- a friend of mine his name is Bob Owens, who was a blogger from back in the early days when there weren't that many people blogging. And all the bloggers kind of knew each other across the country. I I, I know it might be hard to, re- to believe now, but like in the early 2000s, that's kind of how it was. Political bloggers were a very, very small group of people. It was a very, very sort of weird community. And he he killed himself as well. So it's it's tragic. If you need help, get help. More to come straight ahead here on the Rob Report. 701-293-9000-888-970-9329. Email talk at WDAY.com. We'll be back. Go away. Rob Report here on 970 WDAY. Call in 701-293-9000-888-970-9329. Email talk at WDAY.com. There's uh, a little bit of a fight brewing between the legislature and Governor Doug Burgum's office. I'm sure you heard in the uh, news reports 
that the legislature, legislative leaders are requesting uh, a legal opinion regarding the, well, the, the legality of some of Governor Doug Burgum's vetoes. Uh, you know what's at play here, Natil? Because I can explain it. I would really appreciate it if you would explain it. I haven't it's, been able to keep a, up on this one. Well, it's a little down in the weeds, but essentially the North Dakota Constitution uh, gives Governor Burgum a veto authority. Um, but it's it's sort of there's sort of two tiers of it. Um, one, he can he can veto any bill he likes. Right. So he can just outright veto. You know, if he doesn't like a bill, he can veto it. And then the legislature can decide if they want to overturn it. There's an additional power that allows him to line item veto line item veto things out of appropriations bills, which basically means he can veto part of an appropriation bill, but not the entire thing. So what Governor Burgum did, and, and just as, as one example, Senate Bill 2003, the legislature passed it, and, and that bill was the appropriations bill for the North Dakota University system. In that bill... Uh, the legislature appropriated money for capital projects, but then stated they put a restriction on that appropriation in a in a section, and it basically said that if 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 the universities want to build new projects, they have to be in compliance with like like a university system master plan or a space utilization study. And essentially what the legislature is doing is saying, hey, let's let's not just build to build here. Let's build and, and make sure it's in accordance with, you know, some sort of a sense of, of need, right? Like, like we're going to build because we need the space, not we're going to build because we're just building empires, which unfortunately our universities have been very, very, very bad at in the past. So that's what the legislature did. They said, "Here's some money for capital projects, but if you're gonna if you're gonna use this money, you have to comply with some sort of a like a master development plan or a space utilization study." Governor Burgum vetoed the that section of the bill. He vetoed the restriction, but left the appropriation, and that's where he may have run into some trouble. There is a Supreme Court case from, I think it was 1979, uh, Link. The Olson, North Dakota Supreme Court case, and and essentially what what that what that case was is the governor at the time, Art Link, uh, the legislature had created a new government department under the lieutenant governor's office. Governor Link didn't like that, so Governor Link vetoed that section of the bill, but left the appropriation in place. So he vetoed the part that said that the money was going to be used for this new department under the lieutenant governor's office, but he left the money in the bill. He then issued an executive order created, creating essentially the very same office under his office and then used that appropriated money for that office. Uh, he got challenged in court, and he lost with the court saying that if a governor vetoes like restrictions or or some intent on spending on an appropriation, he also has to veto the appropriation, which makes a lot of sense, right, Natil? Because if the legislature, if excuse me, if the governor can just veto restrictions on spending, right? So if the legislature says we're going to appropriate three million dollars for the state historical society, right? If we allow the governor to just go in and cross out the part where it's for the State Historical Society and then just use that money for whatever the hell he wants, then at that point the legislature really has no power, right? I guess unless they override the vetoes. Um, 
you know, to, to where the the governor could just X out things and say, and then use the money for whatever he wants. Um, you know, so that's that's the standing of the state Supreme Court. So what the legislature is saying is that with Senate Bill 2003, as well as several several others, what the governor did is essentially he exceeded his veto authority. Is this all making sense or is this too down in the weeds? No, it's making sense so far. I mean, basically, right. he, he exceeded his authority by vetoing restrictions on a portion of spending when if he had Without just... Without vetoing the fe- spending itself. Yeah, if he had just vetoed the spending itself, then it would have been fine, correct? Right. Well, he could, yeah, and he would have to veto, like, like you veto both, right? You veto the appropriation and, and obviously the restrictions or whatever that go along with well, yeah, it. Well, yeah, because if, if, the money's had, gonna be spent. if he had vetoed the, the spending at all, right. the restriction wouldn't have needed to be there, period. Right, because otherwise otherwise then, then it's like you're removing legislative intent. And that's very important because the executive branch doesn't legislate, right? The, the legislature legislates. That's their power. That is their constitutional authority that was given to them and not the executive branch. The executive branch can veto. They can give a thumbs up or thumbs down, but what they can't do is is change a, a bill so, so that it becomes different policy, right? And so what you do is if you veto restrictions on spending, well, now you've created different policy. Now instead of, of, of the spending being earmarked for a specific purpose, now I guess it's just it could be used for whatever, and that's not legislature's intent, and it's not up to the governor to do that so i i don't know I, I have been reading over the the legislature's case and i think they got a strong one and it's going to be a little bit interesting because governor doug burgum you know obviously he came into office and we, we didn't see a lot of this friction during the legislative session itself but last year when he was campaigning it was against the good old boys in washington right and and he sort of really rode that populist uprising that we saw both in North Dakota and really nationally, I think, with Donald Trump. I, I think there's a lot of similarities. Doug Burgum is very different from Donald Trump in terms of style and, and, and a lot of other things. But in terms of the sort of kick the bums out, very upset with the status quo, very upset with the quote-unquote establishment attitude, Burgum definitely tapped into that. Now, the thing is, is is this is kind of a showdown between the legislature and Governor Burgum's office, and I think Burgum might lose it. I think he might lose this showdown. I, when he issued those vetoes, I was talking with political insiders and, and the gossip, right, all, all the people who are wagging their chins about this stuff. You know, they're kind of like, oh, well, you know, this is this is sort of Burgum's signature moment, right? Because all session long I heard, you know, Burgum needs to issue some vetoes. You know, Burgum needs to do something show the legislature who's boss. Um, and so I, I guess maybe this was the moment is legislature adjourned. He issued, what was it like nine vetoes after they adjourned? And, um, you know, the, the people wagging their chins were all sort of saying, well, you know, this is, that's Burgum's signature moment. He sure showed them. Well, I have a feeling this, you know, I, I guess we'll see. And by the way, the other interesting part, when the legislature requested the attorney general's opinion, well, guess who's in charge of that? That would be Attorney General Wayne Stengem, who is the man who lost to Burgum in the Republican primary last year. Not that, which isn't to say that I, I think Wayne Stengem would, you know, base his opinion on any sort of petty political calculation. But it's interesting and it's of note. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I think we'll see what the opinion comes out. And, you know, I, it's it's going to be an expedited opinion, obviously, because the current biennium is going to end at the end of, of June. 
And so there's got to be some answers about what's going to happen with this money. But I think Burgum's going to lose this fight with the legislature. I think he probably did exceed his veto authority by my reading of it. Now, Burgum has his own lawyers. I'm sure he consulted his lawyers before he issued the vetoes. Um, and he's going to make his own case. But I don't know. I, I, I think it's pretty hard. It's, it's, it's pretty hard for me to buy into the idea that, that the governor can just veto restrictions on appropriations that the legislature put in place by, and leave the appropriation. You know, you, you can't have it both ways. And I think if we let governors have it both ways, then we're ceding way too much authority to the executive branch. And I don't know about the rest of you, but I kind of like the powers in government to be balanced. More to come straight ahead, 701-293-9000, We'll be back after this. Don't go away. Welcome back, Rob Report here on 970 WDAY. I'm just I'm just seeing now this, you know, the teal we were, by the way, 701-293-9000 if you want to join in, 888-970-9329, email talk at WDAY.com. You know, it's, it's funny, I've been kind of following this this Time magazine cover and I was talking about it and if, if you haven't seen it yet, I'm, I'm sure you can find it online. The um, it, essentially the Time magazine cover shows the White House and it's turning from white into red bricks, I guess. Uh, and, and then you see sort of the onion dome of and, and the implication is supposed to be that the Kremlin is overtaking the White House. Right. Because the Kremlin is, you know, is, is I you know, the Kremlin is sort of the, the seat of power in Russia, uh, much as the White House is the seat of power here in the United States. But they're using the Onion Dome from St. Basil's Cathedral, which is a church which stands across Red Square from the Kremlin, and that makes absolutely no sense. Now it turns out, Natil, that Mad Magazine had, like, the same cover in December 2016. Oh, really? Yeah. Like, they had they had the White House with, like, the uh, St. Basil's Onion Domes on top of it, and it kind of looks like Time Magazine ripped them off a little bit. Oh, not a good, not a good time. Time mag, not a good, not a good time. Not a good job, Time Magazine. I don't know. I don't know. Stuff like that bugs me. Like, I, I, I mean, if you're going to do it, if you're going to make, if you're going to make the joke, if you're going to make the reference, then do it accurately. St. Basil's Cathedral is not the seat of, of government power in Russia. It's a very famous building. It's a museum today, um, but it's a religious building. And it's not part of the Kremlin. It's not part of the the Russian government, uh, other than it's 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 an iconic piece of architecture that is associated with Moscow. So, all right, I'm done belaboring that point. Um, back to the Bergam veto thing. I don't know. I don't know how much that's going to matter. Um, 
you know, I don't, I don't know how much people follow that sort of thing with with Burgum versus uh, the legislature or whatever. I, I think sometimes it is a part of of politics that gets lost on people, though, is just how much of the political debate circles around friction, particularly between between the branches of the government, but in particular the executive branch and the legislative branch. It's in a very very important part of the American form of government, and it, it really, I, I think people assume that because. And I hear people talk about this all the time because, you know, for instance, in North Dakota, Republicans control both branches of of the government, right? We have a Republican legislature. Republicans both control both chambers of the legislature, the House and the Senate. The Republicans also control uh, the executive branch. Governor Burgum is a a Republican. But here's the thing about that is is both of those entities are uh, and should be very, very protective of their branches of government government's power, um, and and to me, it, to my mind, that that is always something that I'm watching out for is that the legislature stands up for itself, or, or that the governor's office stands up for itself, because much more troubling to me, right? Because people talk about having super majorities, uh, and and one party having too much power or whatever, much more dangerous than that. Because an election could could fix that. I mean, if voters decide that one power party or another is doing a bad job, they can they could vote accordingly and, and change that. What is much more difficult to change is if one branch of government becomes a pushover for the other branch, right? So the legislature would be remiss, even though they're controlled by you know Senate Majority Leader Rich Wardner and House Majority Leader Al Carlson, even though they're Republicans, they would be remiss. In not standing up for their, for themselves, for their their branch of government as a separate and co-equal branch of government to the executive branch, because if they allow Governor Burgum to get away with this, and I I think he did, I think his vetoes probably did exceed his authority per the state constitution. If they allow him to get away with this, then what you're left with is a governor that has too much power. Right. And we want we want that power to be balanced. Um, People put too much stock about getting things done. Natil, and I'm about to go on a rant here about how getting things done in government is not necessarily the goal, Uh, which probably puts me in the minority because that's what everybody hears. They're, They're tired of gridlock or whatever. But there's a process in place and the process has checks and balances. And that process is important because it ensures that the policy that is produced right that that becomes the law that we all have to follow that we all have to live under that it has gone through a rigorous process with multiple reviews from from multiple people who are not necessarily independent of of one another that's why the governor is not allowed to legislate but he does get an opportunity to veto legislation and it's why the legislature can override that veto if they summon large enough majorities it's also why the courts Get a check on both branches, um, you know, and but the courts have to follow the law as it's written by the legislature and, and signed into law by the governor. So that's how it all works. I guess that's a little bit of civics 101, but people forget about that. I mean, people get so wrapped up in, uh, you know, let's just get things done. Let's just bang things out. Let's just, you know, move ahead. Why do we got to go through all this rigmarole? Well, we go through it because it's important. 
we go through it because it should be an arduous process. Creating law should not be something that is easily done. The wheels should turn low. They should be hard to spin. There should be a lot of obstacles. There should be a lot of sand in the gears. I am a fan of all that stuff. Those are called checks and balances, and they're important. They're an important part of the American system of government from the federal level down to the local level. I, I don't like, for instance, and even though even though I tend to agree with a lot of policy outcomes when, when President Trump came in signing executive orders here and there, I don't necessarily like that. There's a process for making law. The executive branch shouldn't be making law. I'll step off my soapbox now. Jay Thomas Show coming up next. Be sure to tune in for that. You can always catch me here 1 to 2 p.m. Monday through Friday or 24 hours a day, seven days a week at sayanythingblog.com. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again.